0: <laughs>
1: Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Lads, 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 and we're kicking it off with some couples facts in honour of today's guest, a self-described Arab Essex girl whose Geordie mother hitchhiked from Gateshead to Beirut to track down the man she loved. Couples, married for over 20 years, are even happier than newlyweds, so the research tells us. I have to say that's something I'm unlikely to get to put to the test. Over 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's human marriages. When it comes to emperor penguins, 85% of them divorce. Oh, imagine how smug the 15% is. The average couple has sex for 69 minutes a week. That's got to be all the new couples shagging round the clock, averaged out against married couples never doing it again, right? Two lonely otters found love in lockdown with help from an otters-only dating website. An otters-only dating website. Easy for me to say. Fishing for love. This is a real story. The happy otter couple moved in together and they now live at Sea Life Scarborough. not often you associate sea life Scarborough with a happy ending but there you go and in 2011 a celebrity Galapagos tortoise couple had a dramatic breakup after cohabiting happily for 90 years suddenly they couldn't stand each other they now live on opposite sides of a glass wall and the female hisses every time she spots her ex fair
0: no well you look amazing look at those cheekbones you could hang washing off them Really? Yeah, you've got amazing cheekbones. That's why you don't age.
1: That's my guest today, Esther Manito. On the 14th of February 1784, there was a wedding in Derby where the couple had between them seven thumbs. The bride had three, the groom had four. Jeez. And 10 years later in 1794, an unmarried woman called Jane Stanley agreed to fund her town's new pavements as long as they were too narrow for an arm-in-arm couple to use. That's good to know she wasn't bitter. In Taiwan, workers get eight days of leave when they get married, but there's no limit to the number of times you can get married. And a Taiwanese couple last year made headlines for marrying four times and divorcing three times in the space of 37 days so they could get extra time off work. And in 2009, a Bosnian couple divorced after discovering they'd unknowingly been having online affairs with each other. We're here, how are you? I'm alright. Esther Manito took up stand-up comedy whilst on maternity leave and quickly made her name as one of the country's top comics. She supported Alan Davis, Shappi Kosandi, Jason Manford, Joe Brand and Al Murray and recently made her live at the Apollo debut. Her first solo show, Crusade, aimed to give a voice to outsiders everywhere. Esther said of it at the time, it's a show for anyone who has been judged by a mum at the school gate or who's struggled juggling their parents' culture with the culture of their birthplace. She's currently performing her second solo show, #NotAllMen, all men, ahead of taking it to the Edinburgh Fringe this summer. Esther and I talked about starting out, writing, stereotypes, judgment, maternity leave, parenting, parents, role models, being an outsider, professional envy, and fitting in. But I started by asking her about the timing of getting into comedy.
0: So I was 33 because I had... My son was like, I had my son at 32 and then I turned 33 and he was still very little.
1: So were you on maternity leave when you did your first gig or is that yeah, apocryphal? I had
0: I had a five-month-old and a two-year-old and I was on maternity leave.
1: Okay, the question I have to ask is how? Why? Never mind why, I just want to know. How?
0: I was exhausted. I was absolutely exhausted. And now a lot of people I know are having children in comedy. And when they say things to me like, how did you do it? Even that I'm like, no, because now we've got to a point where we can go and do a spot and go home. I started comedy where I was doing bringer nights and having to stay till the end and turn up to see the lineup And then you know, bring a mate and be there till half past midnight and then get home at half one and then be up in the night with babies and then not sleep the next day and do the same the next day. I had nausea for about two years of just exhaustion.
1: That kind of jet lag feeling that everything's off. Yeah, So I've got so many questions about this, not least because (laughs) I started, when I said we started at the same um, time, we started the same year, I think, but I was 45 and you were 33. So I'm not trying to age you up. But what I am really interested in is I started comedy at that time in part because my kids were old enough. I didn't need a babysitter. So my youngest was 14. And that's partly what held me back doing it sooner was because of the job and the single mumming. I didn't know how to do it. Yeah, And when I started doing it, on every level, I could not imagine how people combined this with young children. So first of all, on a practical note, did you kind of, ideas-wise, like my brain was just mush when my kids were the age yours were, so how were you even writing, let alone turning up on time?
0: I wasn't writing. What I would do was I would, so I would drop my daughter at nursery because she was two, so she would go into nursery and, um, And then I would walk my son and he would sleep when the pram was moving. So what I would do is I would just record ideas for stand up and then listen to it back. And then so as I was walking him and he was napping, I would then record ideas and then refine them, listen to them back, re-record them and, and write my sets that way. Can I just say already
1: that any success you've got is hard won and I will never, ever begrudge you anything good that happens to you comedically or indeed in life. So you're going round with one kid dropped off in nursery, sick on your jumper, I'm guessing for embellishment, little boy asleep (laughs) in a buggy, maybe. You recording stuff. So did you... The ideas that you're having. I never saw your material. I think we did gig together once very, very early on. And I remember hearing how you were with your husband and you'd left the kids and that was quite unusual that you'd gone down to Bath without the kids because they were so little. Oh, yeah. Yes. And you two were yeah. kind of slightly giddy because you were both there and the kids weren't around. So I think yeah. you felt a little bit – So uh, you... and then you got And then, and you then got we up. both died. You didn't. You thought you did. You didn't. <laughs> no, I did. But I was in awe. <laughs> I do remember Simon Evans was headlining and him trying to be really nice to us and going, oh, well, it's great that you're, you know, having a go. And <laughs> basically code for what What do you two think you're doing? I think he thought we came as a sad package.
0: I think I think Simon Evans <laughs> thought we were part of like Make a Wish Foundation, and this was our one dream before we died. Cause yeah, we or that so your deep.
1: NCT class had sent you out a challenge, and my uh, my menopause group were like, "Go on, Kelly, you can."
0: I also remember the opening act hating us. and um, yes. he should not be named,
1: but yes. he wanted us dead very much. So he did. But look who's laughing now. <laughs> uh, so. But when you think about that, so the material I didn't read, I don't remember what material you did that night, which was probably the only time I saw you when you were very new. Yeah. And what sort of things were you writing about then? When you had tiny little, it was kids? all was it was it all, all baby related. Birth. Yeah. It was all
0: yeah. So I did a lot of stuff about which I kind of still. I mean, it all keeps going now because I do a lot of those mum baby gigs, and they all it all relates now. But it was all about that stuff about you know, not being able to because my daughter being two and my son being a baby, she was obviously going through the toddler phase where I just really wanted to shout at her and it was a lot of and then on top of that, getting a lot of judgment for doing stand up, um, and getting a lot of um negative comments about a woman that goes out and does a job that's of, you know, of an evening when you're a mum. Where that was came, that?
1: Where was that negativity coming from? Um A lot of mums would say it. I think
0: that it took them a long time to get used to it. Um, My family even, you know, there was a lot of, but what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Stop it.
1: (laughs) And when you say mothers, do you mean audience or other comedians or people you knew on the school run or whatever? School run, like mums that I knew, they would just say things
0: like, um, you know, about Neil, poor Neil, and, you know, I bet Neil didn't sign up for this, and... um, Lots of comments like that. Also, constantly being commented on that maybe I wasn't there for my children. Um, that you know, do you feel uh, I mean, that there were comments about my kids feeling that they must feel like they're passed from pillar to post? I had an agent who um, was very interested in chatting to me, and then when he realised how young my children were, actually said, "Well, I think with kids that young, um, how much can you really commit to a career in comedy?" Wow! And I felt Someone like actually I just- said that to you. A male agent said that to me, a male oh, wow. comedy agent, and I felt like I'd had a punch to the face. I was like, "Oh wow," because
1: he had children. I'd love to know really... what he thought when he saw you striding out onto that live at the Apollo <laughs> stage just a short few years later. I
0: doubt he would have even. I doubt he would have even remembered what he said. But there was just this thing of like, "But if your kids are little and you're a mother, you should be at home." And at, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that was. That was the kind of underlining and people can't help that reaction and he wouldn't have said it to me if I was a dad because the assumption would be that I have a very lovely wife who's at home and happily taking care of the children. Well Um, there's
1: loads of dads with young kids doing comedy of course and because it is still percentage wise many more men than women doing it although you know that's uh, that's changing pretty swiftly but there are so many guys doing it with young babies and they talk about their young babies and I don't suppose anyone's going who's with the baby tonight when they come off stage. (laughs)
0: I doubt the the mum's being referred to as a babysitter.
1: Yeah, I know. I used to. I still get this actually, even years on. And I know your kids are obviously that that bit older because that's how time works. But I, I still um I still get like people still think my kids' dad, who has been a you know he has been a really good dad to my kids, um, despite us being separated. But the credit he would get for being on the school run, um, and he wasn't on the school run every day, and I was the one earning the money. Literally, I was the breadwinner. So it's kind of like, what? Why is that? Why is he getting? positive comments yeah. for that I don't think the well, mum's ever does and is that so the bit that I'm really kind of well there's so many bits of your story that that are you know that are properly kind of awe-inspiring but the idea of managing to do that when in the beginning of stand-up we all want to give up quite a few times. I'm not saying we don't still now sometimes, but it, it really is oh, a I bit did yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I do most days. I think I'm going to tonight. I won't say where I'm going on air, but I'm pretty sure that's what's about to happen. And, but, so we, oh, yeah. we, do, <laughs> we do go through those bits of wanting to give up. And when you've also got the world saying, well, why are you doing this anyway? And you've got little kids and you must have been knackered. And we do, mums feel, well, all parents feel guilty oh, all the time. Callie, so how did you navigate all that? You are literally tapping
0: into such a raw nerve that I even had a meltdown about yesterday because I just really want someone to say well done and it never fucking happened I've just said
1: it and I'm gonna keep saying it yeah I'm gonna (laughs) keep saying
0: it I, I had a real meltdown to my husband yesterday I was like you're the only one who ever says well done um my dad even when he
1: watched live at the Apollo just went but why were you just standing there You see, I watched your live at the Apollo and I was like, God, Esther's got really good at like physical comedy. Like she's really, like you were really good at like walking it and acting it out. And I was like, God, I don't remember you doing as much acting it out on stage. I thought it was, I was like, have you just done that? Because it's such a massive stage. So you can tell your dad, I thought the opposite. I'll take him on. I mean, my dad was quite good because I remember my in-laws like,
0: um, you know, saying to dad when I first started out, like, you know, should she really be... My mother-in-law was a bit like, you know, she's out quite a lot and, and she's out doing this. And my dad was like, well, that's not how I, you know, I haven't raised her to kind of be a housewife. So I'm going to stand by this. And my dad was really supportive. And I've got to say thank, you know, thank God for my dad, because he um he doesn't say it and he'll never say you're good <laughs> or I love you. But <laughs> um he did just turn up at my house three nights a week. And like, take to my kids as if he was a as if he was a young man, as if you know he was he was a a young bloke, and and changed nappies and did what was needed to make me go out and and do stand up. So
1: that was him saying you're good and I love yeah. you. Yeah, he just said it with the nappy changes. <laughs>
0: yeah, he just couldn't couldn't say it, but um, but yeah, no, it it was it was really full on and there was you know moments of my mother-in-law was like well you know not many husbands would stand by this and um I mean to be fair at some point they weren't even wrong because I had two babies and I was killing myself I was coming home at go on midnight getting up in the middle of the night and then up in the morning and just felt like my head was in this fishbowl and going out and doing the same again the next night and my husband was like like if you want to do this as a hobby fine but it's got to be like once or twice a month you can't like for three four nights a week like what are you doing and I was so like how, no, you're did totally you, right.
1: how did you convince him to because it is very hard to explain to people who haven't done it why you need to be that because you kind of do need to be that obsessed to get anywhere actually and I think you kind of do need to be gigging three or four or even five times yeah, a yeah. week which is really hard yeah, for anyone once... listening might be like well why but it's yeah. it's it's literally like saying oh I want to run a marathon and I'm only going to run once a month otherwise you, yeah. you sort of got to see it as training that's for something exactly like as that it is. yeah that's exactly as it is and
0: I found it therapeutic and I just found that the more I ranted on stage the less frustrated I was at home I I I wasn't I wasn't completely fulfilled by being a mum I love my kids more than life itself I absolutely adore them and I fell in love like I never ever thought I'd fall in love but my brain was just stopping and I really felt that after I had my second I, I went to a play group and I was sat and this woman was trying to make small talk about I don't know teething or something and just in my head was just this voice screaming going say anything and I was just like I've got nothing to say and mm. I used to be the person that was like chatty, loud, storyteller, and I just felt my brain was just kind of going in on itself. And I, and I generated a lot of anxiety as well. I felt like I was quite a crap mum and I wasn't very really good at it. And every time I kind of tried to make a joke at Mother's Group about me being a crap mum, it would be lots of women looking awkwardly going, hmm, it's not really appropriate. And I was like, I'm not doing well. So standing on stage
1: and making jokes about being a shit mum just made life a lot easier. And do you look back at those times, I look back at some things that I did, I'm almost, I I am going to admit to this on air, but I'm almost reluctant to. So I remember one time, and again, it was just an open mic night, but that's all we were doing at the start, right? So I was probably like less than a year in and really needing the stage time and no credit in the bank with anyone if you didn't turn up. And my daughter had um, an operation, it was a very minor operation, she had a tooth out with an anaesthetic, but it was in a hospital. And I remember I had... Her dad was going to look after her as soon as I got her home and I had it all planned out and then I was going to go to the gig and it was nearby. And I remember, and I I'm almost, I feel ashamed to say this, I remember the discharge, you know, the nurse doing the discharge notes. And I should add, it wasn't like she just had open heart surgery. And me just thinking, could you just hurry up? like, Because I've got a cab out there and I've got to get her home and go to work. I now look back at that and I am like, what were you thinking? Why on earth did you not cancel... I know she was also. She wasn't like a baby, you know. She was a. She was a. Te- I was there with her as a. As a. As a teenager, you know, helping being by her side. But I don't know what I was thinking. So you must have moments, probably not as crap as that one, where you look back at it and go, "What was I thinking?" Do you have those moments of guilt or shame that I've just described, <laughs> or am I just? Oh, no, I'm
0: really committed. To- <laughs> um, <laughs> I definitely, definitely have moments. I remember turning up at backyard bar. And Jamali Maddox was stood outside, and I was very close to tears because my daughter just threw a massive wobbly. um, And she was only little and she just wanted her mum. And I had to go and do this open spot, a backyard bar. I mean, why I risked it when I still don't get booked there, I don't know. But
1: it's not not just me.
0: (laughs) But I was like, I've got to get, you know, I've got to go and do this open spot. And the guilt that I felt because my dad just was like, she'll be fine, she'll be fine. And my dad texted me about two minutes later and was like, you know, she's off to bed, she's fine. But I just felt, yeah, what a shitty mother. What a shitty mother. Um, But I was like, if I don't do this spot, then I won't get another opportunity.
1: And yet there are men and women the world over doing whatever they do for a living, having to do exactly yeah. that, walk out the house to work, you know, in the morning, well, the kid doesn't want you to leave them at nursery, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, and people still don't think of this as your job
1: I know it's funny isn't it how people think they you're a, as a, a hobbyist hobby. I know I had someone last night who came I did a gig at the Bill Murray last night angel comedy and um I was emceeing and a friend of mine came who I I knew was coming who I haven't said who I used to work with at MTV and then she brought along someone else who I used to work with I hope he's not listening to this because he's got quite a big job at one of the broadcasters now and he said um he, he was definitely treating me like it was a bit of a hobby and he was like oh i saw that you know one of our commissioning editors how do you know them and i was like oh because they've been talking to me about a show and it, it was like it baffled him that someone might be actually approaching me as sort of talent but then he also said he said um oh, i really hope we were going to see you perform tonight And I was emceeing, I'd done 12 minutes at the top because it was tube strike day and we were waiting for people to come in and five minutes at two more junctions. I was like, you've seen me do 25 minutes. It wasn't just accidental that the room lit up. (laughs) It's like, what? So there was still that perception and and maybe because he knew me and my old guys But I was like, you still think I'm just on stage like fucking around a bit and it's not, there's not any craft or art to this,
0: so. Yeah, I know, I know. I remember when I first got through the BBC um, Comedy Awards thing that you get that letter saying that you've been accepted and I remember my mother-in-law going, yeah, but you're not going to go. And I was just like, "Um, yeah, and she was like, oh, but why? And it. So there was still that thing of like, okay, but how far are you going to take this hobby, this little hobby? And I think still to this day, people are like, you just have a great life. You just prat around and it's socialising and, you know, and your husband has to stay home and look after the children. And I don't think people fully see how much to do with guilt as well. Um, But also because you have that guilt, all mums have that guilt because unless we stay at home committed mothers then we're just like pieces of shit who should be really ashamed of ourselves even though we're earning um but you you know you really bend over backwards to try and make sure that everything's accommodated all the time um and yet Why am I still feeling apologetic Apologetic. when I'm bringing in 50% of the salary? Well, one thing
1: that is, I always want to say to people who've got kids that are slightly minor in their 20s now, as you know. And one thing I never thought of in all those years, I felt enormously guilty, Esther. And I used to travel around the world for my job. You know, that was my job, was traveling. So I was repeatedly leaving the kids from very young. I might add, not on their own. They were well looked after. And we had a whole kind of network of family and, and friends who helped. And it was only when my kids got to older, like probably teenage up to where they are now, that I realised far from, oh, well, they kind of we managed and it was we compromised. What you are doing, and I hope you're getting a sense of this already, is providing an incredible role model for your children of the fact that aspiration is not gender based and hmm. they have absolutely every right to decide how they want their lives to be professionally because you have shown them that. So there is actually also an enormous positive, quite aside from the fact that the world needs your comedy, but there is an enormous <laughs> positive for your children that you won't necessarily be noticing at this point. But I promise you that is coming.
0: Oh, that's nice. I never think of that. I never you think don't of that. until
1: you start to see it. And then you'll realise in the same way that your dad, and I want to talk about your parents in a minute, but that your dad has brought someone out into the world to do what you've done you know you you've done that yeah. for your children so it isn't just a kind of like oh well, they'll they've coped you, you this is there's a kind of gift in what you're doing for them i promise you
0: yeah i hope that i hope that they feel that way when they're older they might, they, they might not. Also, they be will. Absolute asses well, they'll, they'll, think the <laughs> they'll think you're an asshole.
1: They'll think you're an asshole because you're their mum, and that's their job. Oh, that's true. true. So yeah. they will think you're an asshole, but grudgingly, you'll also notice that they've they've seen you as a kind of incredible role model. And and talking of incredible role models, so just for anyone listening who doesn't know your story of your mum and your dad and your kind of heritage and uh, how you ended up, a sort of I think you've described yourself as an Arab Essex girl. So just tell us, uh, yeah, the story of your mum meeting your dad.
0: So my mum's a Geordie and my dad's from Lebanon and they met at uh, uni and then they went back to Lebanon uh, and had my elder sister and then they lived in Greece and had my middle sister and then they came and settled in Essex which is where I was born. Uh, They're now separated and my dad is now here with me and my mum's over in North London with my sister Um, so I'm the only real proper Essex girl out of me and my sisters, but yeah. So you now live with a
1: Lebanese dad and an English husband, an English husband, yeah. That's quite the um, Lebanese dad, that's quite the kind of sandwich of different and and, uh, a son as well. So three male egos in the house, and you and your daughter, (laughs) yeah. Who wins?
0: (sighs) I don't. I don't think anyone wins. I feel like it is a lose-lose situation. It's a lose-lose situation. I feel <laughs> like everyone's just kind of like ping-ponging into each other. the kids win? Obviously, because that's the that's the times we live in now, where they just shout and scream, and we all just pander to everything that they want because that's the way we do it. And I also, I love the fact that at the moment you have children, the grandparents sit there and they go, "Oh my God, you're really harsh on that one." Or oh God, just let that one be. And you're like, God, "Do you remember when we were kids? And we just used to get a fucking slap." <laughs> <laughs> with a shoe uh, for even kind of rolling our eyes. And now suddenly I'm a complete arsehole because I've said no to seven
1: hours of
0: Team Titans or whatever it is.
1: It's funny how you end up, I noticed this with my kid's little brother who's eight. And the difference, even though he's not my grandchild, when he was born, my kids were like, it's like you've got a grandchild. I was like, well, apart from that, I'm younger than your dad, who's just had the baby. But yeah, it's exactly like that. But I do notice there's a sort of, you are the popular one. And you're the, like, if I take him to Legoland, you know, the little one, he's just a sweetheart all day in a way that if I was taking my kids to Legoland, they'd have been screaming for toys. They'd have been, but he just, because I'm not the parent. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm still really close to him. I reckon that probably is a bit like the grandparent relationship. Oh, that's lovely. I think I've knocked means- out a grandchild, Esther, without any efforts.
0: That's what I want. I want one that you can give back.
1: Yeah. The one that just looks at you adoringly. Yeah. Well, you will get that probably, just not at the moment have because you got- your children a- are quite small. T- have you got a dog? I'm about to get one. It, in fact, of getting... This is a weird thing to say because people will be like, "How do you know you're getting?" But he's actually being born right now. The mother of the dog that's going to be my dog uh... is in labor. As what we type speak. of dog are you getting? A miniature wirehead Dachshund. So she's been in labor <gasps> since gentle labor since two a.m. So any minute. The puppy she's having five puppies one of which will be mine so i'm gonna get a puppy um a puppy well it's because you've not got enough you've got not enough chaos in the house so why not bring you've got grandparents parents kids throw a puppy in the mix (laughs) i know my
0: house is like charlie of the chocolate factory it's just children and elderly in every room um but i I do want a puppy because they don't answer back and they just love you.
1: Also, I don't know how you're finding it now your kids because how old are your kids now, Esther? So they're eight and six, so now I have
0: to wrestle for yes. any affection. Yes,
1: although that might I don't know mine are mine are both still quite affectionate in their own ways, but yes, but yours... it does get it's a bit different. so we're still quite my son's quite tactile, which goes against the autism thing, doesn't it? He's the one who'll no. give you a big hug or and my daughter's Aww. not a big hugger. she does hug me occasionally i think i'm the only person she'll hug or let be let hug her and like if i travel with her we'll stay in the same you know bed together we'll get a room with a double bed and sort of watch movies and stuff and have like pajama parties um so we do do all of that but they you'll still have the affection you're an awesome mum they're gonna affect I,
0: i my girl will i reckon my son already is really formal. He's like his dad. Oh, is he? he? Just wants to, yeah, he just wants to shake hands when he leaves to go to school. That's nice. I'm, like, I'm Master no, Manito.
1: Like uh, thank you for a lovely dinner. I'll see you tomorrow morning. Upon <laughs> the so morrow, formal. you may take me to school.
0: He started calling me Esther as well, instead of mum. And I'm like, no, stop
1: calling me Esther. It's creepy. It's
0: because he's seen you on the
1: telly. He's like, Esther Manito. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know who I am. He he's sat forgotten and Gen... that you're his mum. <laughs> he sat
0: and watched Jen Brister for about 10 minutes. And was like, you
1: look well different on the
0: telly. I'm like, not even me. Oh, nice. I'm observant. <laughs> Observant is my I don't even
1: watch anything, they don't even want to know what I'm on. Anything no. I could come, but I could have just recorded live at the Apollo and come home and go, How was my day? I just recorded live at the Apollo. They'd be like, Yeah, oh, how was it? No,
0: that's what my two were like. Yeah, that's what my two were like. Well, we're again. unduly excited <laughs> for you US. You don't need excitement in, the, in your own
1: house. Namaste, motherfuckers. The puppy thing I was going to ask you because now you've got a six and an eight year old. Even though we we hate the chaos of it all, um, or hate it, it's, it's a bit overwhelming. But I do, when you start to find, I know there is still a lot of chaos attached to a six and an eight year old, but now I'm like, having had a whole lifetime of a house full of kids and all their mates, because we live in yeah, a school. Yeah, yours have moved out. Mine have moved out. and literally everyone's like oh the puppy's gonna turn your house upside down I'm like do you know what bring it on because there's food. something very disconcerting yeah. I go downstairs everything's as I left it if there's food in the fridge there's still food in the fridge and it's very quiet and neat and a bit of me's like this is a family home like I don't want to get used to quiet and neat I don't want no. to live in a museum no no I mean so although the- that sounds like heaven right now Well, if ever you want a little mini break, you're very welcome to come stay.
0: There's definitely room for you here. I went. I was gigging up in Edinburgh and I had like four days and I was staying in um, someone's flat and they weren't there. But they had like this lovely, just organised home and they had like blankets next to the sofa and an open fire. And I just sat, I kid you not, for about three hours just watching this fire with a blanket and a cup of tea. And I was like, this is heaven i can't remember the last time i've just thought for this long
1: i'm now feeling really inadequate that i don't mine's not that nice that just sounds like a really really nice airbnb mine's not like that mine's still a bit ragged around the edges there's no like also
0: i mean i say that but i can't be alone with my thoughts for too long because then it turns in on myself and before you know it i'm psychotically obsessing about why I don't know. No one I've learned me.
1: to be on my own with my thoughts. I'm gonna. There's a poem I saw in the underground the other day that I posted. I'll send it to you afterwards. I was like, oh yeah, I've actually learned to be on my own with my thoughts. It's only taken 53 years. I'm nailing oh, it now. Yeah. Well, that's the problem I had when I had kids because you can't. I mean, kids are brilliant, but you are on your but you own. You can't with your talk thoughts. to them. I know. I did. People to, are like,
0: I... oh, how can you feel anxious? How can you feel this? You, you know, isn't your time taken up with children? It's like, yeah, but for the first three, four months, they're just blobs of
1: ham. I do remember there being days. and and because they just sleep. They do. Or or there was one day, and Jake's now about to be 25, so I am going back a bit, but there was one day, and there were many days, literally, where you're on the... I think it was like the ninth nappy, and it wasn't even 12 o'clock. He was having a particularly dramatic day, nappy-wise. And I remember thinking, God, you know, a year ago, I was working at MTV, I was travelling the world, I was chatting to adults, and this little baby, who I love more than life itself yeah he's on his ninth nappy, and I've not had any contact with anyone today apart yeah. from him and yeah. and my, not that you don't adore them, but it's like it, it, it people who that's where well, that's all they have and I totally that's no judgment on anyone who puts their whole life into bringing up their kids no 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 I totally applaud that as much as I applaud people who do it the way you've done it, but I just found myself drowning in like where's adult company, yeah, I was just like, and also the fact that the day is so long. I mean, it really it's is not, long.
0: It really is long because you're up at like six, and you like you have your lunch, and then you look at the clock, and it's half past ten, and you're like, "Like this day
1: is so long. It's such a long day." Do you um? D- did you do you listen to Parenting Hell to Josh Wydecombe and Rob Beckett's Parenting Hell? Uh, no, I'm going to be on it. I think on. Monday. I've listened to a couple of episodes. It's so good yeah it's so good it really sums it really sums up the whole thing. It'll make you it'll give you um yeah anxiety if you listen to too much of it because Josh's little one's still under a year and he's in the oh. absolute eye of the storm and his big one I think three oh. or something. Oh god ones that is the a eye bit of the storm. older. Yeah but it yeah, is. That
0: is the eye of the storm.
1: And is it so in terms of your um because one of the other things you've talked about it's really interesting hearing you talk about being a new mum and and then a mum a second time round and how you felt and sort of losing yourself in a way like who am I and what's going on and where's my voice and, and those very kind of understandable feelings and there's a theme that sort of runs through your comedy about as well as there being themes about parenting and kids and about being an outsider like whether it's um, at, at school and, and being someone who sort of felt you look different. So, so what, t- yeah, is, is that accurate for me to say that that's a thing that runs through your work and your yeah. personality?
0: Yeah, always been the outsider, always. I mean, I grew up in a small town in Essex during the time of the Gulf War with a dad that still wore, like, a jelliber, which is the traditional, like, Arabic dress. And it, of course you were the outsider. I mean yesterday i even had this like thing of just suddenly remembering being at primary school and the entire class being invited to a birthday party except for me on the basis that my family was this kind of outsider family and they didn't really want the daughter of an arab going to their birthday party and it was like down the road and i just sat and looked out my bedroom window and watched every single kid from my class going to this house was that in the 80s when
1: was that 80s 90s so this
0: would have been in the 90s yeah God. Yeah. And, you know, didn't fit in the town that I grew up in, didn't fit in the school that I went to. So it wasn't really until I went to uni that I kind of was like, oh, it's okay to be mixed race. It's okay to have a kind of, because I went to uni in London, Um, but never really fulfilled the kind of, I I mean, when I got married to my husband, he's quite conventional, very conventional guy, um, traditional kind of working class British guy. And when we got married, I just was like, God, I'm not meeting the kind of expectations of what it is to be a bride what it is to be a wife and then i had children and i was like god i'm just really crap at this and how <laughs> so i've we never see... felt like a proper person
1: that's really interesting and it's funny i'm sure you know it's i'm not the first to have pointed this out but obviously comedy is full of people like us who didn't fit in yeah. we felt like outsiders and suddenly it is a kind of band of rogues and everybody i don't know many i don't know many Comics who've got into it after having a kind of easy paper round. I think we've all sort of got into this for our own reasons that perhaps yeah. life wasn't quite as straightforward as it might be, or certainly didn't feel like that. And did, ha- has that felt? Is that part of what's drawn you to it? Do you think the fact that it's there is no kind of inside outside? We're, we're all outsiders in a way.
0: No, no, that didn't I don't think that drew me to it. I feel like even now, being in comedy, I feel like the outsider still. I feel like even with I mean, all the success you're having
1: and all the accolades. No, and... I don't know what's <laughs> You are though. You what what you're get you're getting all the gigs, you're getting on the telly, you're Gully, a hot you're a hot this ticket.
0: Is, this is this is what comedy does though. We all sit there and go, Look at that person. It's Look at so that person. funny you feel like that.
1: Like you're one of the people that's on my feet and I love you. So I want, you know, there's some people if that you're on my feet and you're getting everything. I'd be like, well, fuck you. Because it's you and I love what you do and I love you as a person. I'm delighted for you. But you're definitely one of those people who's all over everything. Oh, I don't feel like... Well,
0: I feel like everybody feels like everybody is... People are looking at you like that. Everyone's looking at you like that. And then we'll be looking at the person. And also you compare yourself to the person that you feel you probably align yourself the most with. So I'll be looking at you in exactly the same way, exactly the same way that you're getting a lot more stuff and that I can't get on these things, but that's what comedy does. And I certainly don't feel like I fit in with comedy. No way. I feel like I've always felt like I'm the kind of person who doesn't fit in with any, you know, group or whatever. Um, But comedy has definitely made me a lot more comfortable because I can get up on stage and talk about that. And at least I can make it funny, which makes it a lot more easy to digest.
1: I I had a line in Invisible where I would say, this isn't funny. It did lead on to the make it funny. But I would say, I get up on stage day in, day out and do this because I find life off stage so difficult. And that was... Definitely true. I sometimes find not always because sometimes your twenty minutes on stage can feel like three weeks, but there are many times. And I doing Kees- <laughs> that one hour show to
0: four people. It could yeah, be like a
1: real. <laughs> it's like oh, was that the whole month of Edinburgh that just happened in this one show? But that. But when it goes well, which more often times it does than not nowadays for us both. That is just the best time of the day, isn't it? When you, I feel like I just forget everything when you're just in it and it's all just going as you want it to go and you're, it's just the best feeling. Oh, there are the times, yeah, feeling. it could be great.
0: Yeah. yeah. When you feel like you've done something well and that's getting recognised is, it's great. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, like it's,
1: you know, it, it. So you still feel like an outsider and you still feel that you're not I... good enough. Oh my God, this is very therapeutic. Um, it's just so interesting not... for people who see you performing and know you to hear this because it's not how you come across. I don't think anyone no. who knows who Esther Manito is would go, yeah, she's full of self-doubt. She doesn't... We just <laughs> assume you're nailing it and you feel like you are. So I think it is really reassuring for people to hear how you might be feeling that isn't what they see. Um, I definitely wish uh, that I had
0: more kind of I think ego is the wrong word, but that ability to just be like, just to see the good and just to see myself as absolutely crushing it. That'd be amazing. Um, I definitely enjoy my time on stage. I love performing live. I'm incredibly like proud of what, you know, of doing the Apollo that, that, that was the kind of like checklist of that's amazing to have achieved that. That was all incredible, but I don't sit here and go, I, I don't think, I don't think anyone's like perfect in kind of any part, you know, any career path they choose. So you still got to keep developing and, and keep learning. And and I've got so far to go and I look all the time at my peers and just go, I wish I could do that better. I wish I could do that better. I wish I could do that better. So I don't think I'll ever sit back in any environment and go, yeah, I fit into that. And I think that comes from my upbringing. That definitely has come from never, ever, ever fitting in. And so having to constantly be this like chameleon who's trying to, so I've got lots of different faces that I can put on to fit into the environment that I'm in. But in terms of internally, no, I'll never ever feel like I fit in.
1: And what would it, so it's not a question of something would have to happen for you to feel like that. That's just part of your kind of architecture. Just part of who I am. I think the only time I ever just go, yeah, this is I, this
0: is totally me, is probably when it's just my husband and my kids. But that's because that's an environment that we've created together, that we've built together.
1: And how has that then? So when you've talked about your personal life and the fact that you, you've had this kind of, not just cultural clash that went on as a child, but then you've also married someone who is very different in terms of personality and expectations and, and perceptions of gender, I guess, in a way. Like he thought, this is what a wife's gonna be. And you're like, no, this is what a wife's gonna be. And I know you talk really interestingly about gender on stage, but how do you then keep that all together at home when, you, when, when that was a stressor, you going out to do the stand up, and he had an opinion, his family had an opinion. How have you kept it all, the train on the tracks?
0: um i think to be honest with you i was i was very very lucky um with who i married and i was very lucky that he was very supportive of me um and the uh, this sounds really really arrogant but i know that he really loves me so it doesn't matter how much we're gonna clash over something he's gonna support me like he's going to support me and he is my biggest cheerleader. And I'm very lucky in that because if it wasn't, if it wasn't for him, um, but we do clash over things. And I think what started out in the beginning of our relationship is proper like head on arguments about stuff. He's somebody who doesn't feel particularly threatened or upset or angry about me highlighting the kind of entitlement that a man gets Um when he's a father and a husband compared to the kind of role that's dished out to a woman when she's becomes a wife and a mother. Um, and he's perfectly happy with those injustices being mocked on stage. So he's, he's really supportive and he's mellowed out as the money's come in, Kelly. It's funny. It's just <laughs> mellowed out.
1: As the money's come in, the fame starts to build. He's like, I always thought this was a good idea. I always told you to do this. And your dad's like, yeah, I don't mind being the, the famous no. dad of the famous... You, you, you said your dad, you never thought your dad would be secretly jealous. So do you think there's a bit of a showboat in your dad?
0: My dad, I think, always wanted to be a stand-up.
1: Never too Otherwise. late. Tell him from me, never too late. <laughs> I know I'm not the same age as your dad, but you know. <laughs> I'm not angling for the role of step of Esther Monito. Although, it's a good story for the circuit, right? <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't
0: subject you to that kelly i would not subject <laughs> you to that uh yeah i think he always wanted to to be a stand-up so he's kind of living it vicariously through me but he definitely isn't going to say that or congratulate me or say well done
1: so you've got a <laughs> proud dad and a proud husband do you think um my therapist said to me the other day uh she said Here's, that's the very first world North London sentence isn't it my therapist said my to me therapist. she said um she said I think you, you you know you're very angry with men uh you're very angry with men uh, and I said I don't know if I'm really angry with men I do like men she says well what do you think if you had to sum up what you think about men I said disappointing that's what came to me and um and if you had to because you do you know your your first show um your second show safe. is is I'm oh, sorry. Hashtag not men. Yeah, hashtag not all men. So what was that? So you do have very strong opinions, beautifully expressed about that was kind of lad culture and stuff. So t- so tell t- tell us about that show and also kind of what your what your view is as you now see it in terms of gender. So not all men uh, came from a very angry
0: man who tweeted at me um about men and and the fact that men are getting really fed up with being labeled in this kind of way and I, even when I did my live at the Apollo I had some really angry people because I did a joke about how a guy stormed out during me even mentioning the word smear test and people are like oh for, I mean it was it was the irony was not seemed to be completely lost on people going I can't believe that she's saying that men can't handle listening to a joke about smear tests then followed by 700 comments of women aren't funny and also that and it,
1: we'll put a link to your live at the Apollo and that is just one I mean it's all super but that's just such a brilliant bit of the, your set as well so yeah and it's
0: like all these guys underneath going oh god women can't be funny that's why they have to talk about vulgar things like smear tests and it's like case in point yeah to the original point of oh but um where I went off on a tandem what so was we were talking original? about lads uh, oh yeah. not all
1: men hashtag not all men, not all men. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and I feel like it must be very, very, very distressing to feel so uh, upset by women <coughs> being in any kind of mainstream narrative. And that must really mess with your head. And I think it's really unhealthy. So the whole kind of angle that not all men is is looking at is instead of going, this is... A feminist show, and it's a feminist issue, and this is a woman talking about it and how it affects women. Is actually, let's start to think about how continuously saying that over 50% of the world's population is secondary and do not need to be part of our mainstream narrative, how that is really impacting our sons. Because the fact that we can listen to a male comic stand on stage. And talk about his prostate or dick jokes or whatever, and accept it as <clears throat> because we've heard it so often before, and it's part of digestible content that we're so used to digesting and and taking on board and, and relating to and finding it funny, and we can imagine the scenario, and you know we can imagine the scene, and 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 it all being very funny. But you replace that with a woman going, so I went for a smear and I was going, I can't imagine what that's like. I don't know what that's like. I don't want to know. I don't even know what that means. I don't I can't I don't know what that involves. It's d- dirty and disgusting and gross. Like how much damage that is doing um, to to male mental health. It must be doing a lot of damage because mm-hmm. it means that you're dehumanizing women all the time. And therefore it's going to make, you know, men who aren't particularly healthy anyway, really act in a way towards women that's not great not you know not particularly healthy or fulfilling so instead of it seeing it as it just as a woman's issue maybe let's start thinking about the damage we're doing to men's mental health by perpetuating the idea that everyone 50% of the people that they're in relationships with be it friends or, or family or sexual are somehow not as human as they are it must fuck with their head i think it it must do
1: and can i just point out as well if ever you're doubting why you're doing what you're doing or what impact that's having on your kids the fact that your son has a mum who's going out saying that stuff on stages and having that view alone is worth the whole thing so um and that and you had i know you've had some sort of i know you and i both had some frustrations in our debut did we both yeah we both debuted the same yeah were you debuting that year no as well? you no, debuted the year you before. debuted the same that's right and you debuted Coward. when i did invisible yeah that's, that's yes. right. And and at the time, we were both, you know, finding it a bit overwhelming and, and wondering, you know, what we were doing and how we were doing it. And it's fair to say that you've got kind of traction building with your shows. What is the next show then for this? We'll put links to all your stuff. But your show this summer that you're working towards in Edinburgh, what's that going to so be
0: So it's going to be hashtag not all men because I didn't do an Edinburgh run with it. So it
1: is hashtag not all men and it's you getting up there and doing this show that you've just but described. But it's going to be... It's gonna be so I've started so I started
0: writing that show during lockdown. Mm-hmm. I previewed the show during Leicester Comedy Festival. So you
1: would have done it last year if you'd been so a normal it, Edinburgh.
0: Yeah, I would have done yeah. it last year if it was a normal Edinburgh. Um but now because it's had a couple of years in the making, it's changed quite a lot and I've now got big chunks of it which has changed and I'm so I'm testing that material and stuff during previews. So it's developing slowly but surely, but it's now becoming I feel like it's weird because when I initially wrote the show, you know what it's like when you're writing a show and you're like, no, this is this is it, this is the show. And then as you start, normally when you do Edinburgh, you probably do what, like 20 previews? And then mm-hmm. you do four weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. So by the time you leave Edinburgh, you're like, now no, I know I've what got my show is. On. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas in doing it this way, of kind of doing it at random little festivals, like when this show started, it didn't even, I remember somebody coming out going, but what's the not all men bit? Whereas now I feel like I'm really getting there after well, doing it. You just described it. it very well, so I reckon you know what the show is about yeah, now. I now that or got you talk there. a
1: good game, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it, literally only in the last like few months do I feel like, and it's just from doing it bit bit on, bit off, reflecting, walking away from it. So I feel like it, it's been a, a much longer process, but I feel like it's going to be a better show than it would have been had I taken it up that 2020.
1: Well it's definitely on my list. If I come up, which I may do to watch a few things, then I'm going To laugh at us. To laugh at you. Know. Just walk up Just walk up behind us and be like, meow, meow. Yeah. And with the puppy, I'll be like anyway, I'm off for a walk and then I'm gonna go for a spa weekend. So enjoy. Oh galley, why? <laughs> I'm gonna read um I'm gonna read a quote, I can't remember where it's from, but um before I ask you the questions I ask everyone. But this was in a review um of must have been one of your not all men shows somewhere. Um, Around the halfway mark, Manito recalls a review of her debut show, which actually wasn't your debut, but of your first solo show, Crusade, where she was described as a woman on the verge of a breakdown. With hashtag not all men, you could describe Manito as a woman on the verge of a breakthrough. And I think that pretty much sums up how we're all seeing you, only you're not on the verge of it. You're you've broken through, Esther Manita. I'm going to tell you that because you're never going to notice. You're going to be like playing stadiums and go, oh, no, no, I still think I'm pretty shit, actually. I'm hoping one day people will watch me. So I'm just going to be the person to point out it's happening, baby. Strap in. It's happening.
0: I was like that on Live with the Apollo. I was just like, that oh, was just a glorified open mic night if they've got me on. <laughs>
1: That's actually you Apollo is like the one I know I get I'm getting lots of other telly But Apollo was always The one I most wanted And still most want So I still am massively In awe of everyone Who's got it And podcast no. wise The podcast I'm desperate To guest on Is Parenting Hell So you've got the two things That I really want Yeah but you've so. got All the other telly That well, I'd never get I've literally got All the other telly In the world Esther Like, this, you've I'm got on, all everything, You're on everything Hosting the 10 o'clock news I'm a breakfast yeah. TV <laughs> presenter I'm a loose woman <laughs> uh, It's all going on Namaste, Fuckers. So, what would you pick, Esther, as your Namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? My Namaste motherfucking life-changing
0: moment uh has it was definitely being up a mountain in the Lake District with my girl. Uh my husband uh was off with my with my boy in the in the backpack, and we just hiked up this mountain. And uh my girl just went. This has just been such a cool day. And I was like, God, doesn't it? What a load of bollocks life is. And it's just about these moments, isn't it? You just got to create these moments and just do things that are just about enjoyment. Forget career, forget looking good, forget what you can put on social media. Just do things for the sake of having some personal enjoyment, whatever that might be. So that's where I was like, you've got to do things. Like I do stuff outside of comedy, outside my family, that is literally just for me. And I'll do it, you know, it may be a class, it may be a hobby, but do things where you go, why am I doing this? Is it for success? Is it for money? Is it for gratification? Is it so I can post about on social media? No, it's just, I take enjoyment from just doing this, from just doing this one thing. Um, And that was my namaste. Sister, in it. a
1: moment, May, how old was your daughter when that yeah. happened? Your little one was still in a backpack, so I'm guessing you don't that. take him round in one now. He's six. I would do, I would still <laughs> breastfeed
0: him. And
1: there are parents doing so that creepy. near where I live, Esther. So, I,
0: I'm so well. That was used to be one of my that's probably one of the jokes I did on stage about when you live in East London, it's just full of women breastfeeding grown men and women. um <laughs> Uh, <laughs> i she would have probably been about four.
1: Oh, yeah that is a lovely story that's a very moving namaste motherfucking moment as they are yeah. supposed to be yeah
0: and she did a proper three mile hike up a snowy mountain and we just stood there and looked at this absolutely incredible view and she was just like god this is brilliant and i was like yeah
1: and we've done it for no other reason apart from just to see this view you're the second guest in a row I've had. Mary Berridge, who I interviewed at her podcast, would have gone out a few weeks before yours. But she's um, the mother of an autistic son, and she's a photographer. And there's a picture. I said, what's your favourite picture in your book? She's um, published this book called Visible Spectrum, Portraits from a World of Autism. And she said it was one of my son, and he's sitting on a mountain in like, you know, wherever it was, some kind of beautiful national park in the States. She's American. And she was like, and he's. And I just, I said, and she said, what did you think when you saw the portrait? I was like, I thought, how the fuck did you manage to get your kid to go on a hike up a mountain? Because I could never. How did you get your four year old up a bloody? I was always like. But that's being married to my husband. I was leaving a trail of like Percy pigs to get mine to even go (laughs) kind of up a hill.
0: We we will go hiking up mountains in snow, and honestly, a friend of mine, she was just like, your holidays honestly sounds like the army. It just doesn't sound like I love the idea of your
1: holidays. I'm all for that. I'm can all for I that. Can I come on but one of your holidays? You can come
0: on one of those holidays. Aww. And then you end up in a pub. And it's so nice. Like you do this really Aww. cold hike. And then you end up in a pub where there's loads of dogs and open fires. Can I come with the dog dinners. on one of your hikes? You can come on holiday. In fact, we'll just do it. Just the two of us, Callie. Okay, Let's go and do that. No dogs, no kids.
1: Perfect. Just us. No dogs, no kids. Amazing. Well, um, that's my action from this week's podcast. <laughs> and what is your favourite joke? <laughs>
0: Oh it's got to be my sore joke. I've done it for years but I love it and it came from teaching. I used to teach so I used to teach film studies and they had to learn about Saw because it's one of the only independent films that may got turned into a mainstream fan franchise. It was a 20 minute short and so I had to teach about the the kind of what mainstream cinema is and I used to teach Saw to my A level kids and I used to make them do a test with me playing the saw music and doing my impression of saw and every time they got one wrong we had to choose what body part one of the students was going to have sawn off and that's where my saw came from and I love doing it on stage and I love doing that voice and I love the fact that it's a really gross <laughs> disgusting voice and I love the fact that men recoil at it when I do it and go oh she's not sexual and you're like no no fucking kidding me <laughs>
1: I wasn't up here to titillate you. <laughs> what a loss to the teaching profession you were, Still, That's a bit of insight. I was
0: such a shit teacher. I liked it.
1: You told me after one of the gigs, we can cut this if you don't want this included. But I remember you saying, and oh, no, I didn't even know like the kids' names half the time. And then <laughs> the parents would be there, and I'd be like, I don't know which one this is. But yeah, I can cut that if you're ashamed. But I loved it. I was like, yeah. You can see that in the eye. You can see it, can't you? When you're at your own kids' parents' you can see no, some like, of the teachers. I, are like, I don't know which yeah. one this is. Some, my daughter's called Ella, Ella, but her middle name is Maisie. But it isn't, it's, it's literally just her middle name. But for some reason, at a secondary school, they had her on file as Ella Maisie. And every class she would say, well, it's just Ella. So the teachers knew. And then occasionally, you'd know the ones who did not know who she was because they would just sit there and go, so Ella Maisie. And Ella would be like, yeah, they've never spoken to me in class. They don't know who I am. And they were reading out something generic.
0: I would have it where students would turn up and it's like, I don't know your name. I've never seen you before. I've never seen you before because my classes used to be so chaotic where the kids that were badly behaved, you just put all your energy. So if you came in, got on with work and kept your head down, I would literally just be like, right, you got this. I'm going to try and wrestle these absolute lunatics at the front of the class. So sometimes they would come to parents evening. But what used to freak me out is when (laughs) I literally had never spoken to a student before. And the mum and dad would be like, and she talks about you? all the time she absolutely (laughs) adores you and you're like I've never even said hello to this kid do you
1: think they were also doing a bit of a hustle they're like pretending they know which teacher you are as well everyone's just lying they're like the kid loves you and the kids I don't even know she is mum why did you say that
0: i love her because she leaves me the fuck alone and doesn't seem to bother the fact that i'm just sat there playing my nintendo at the back of the room i'm like no if you're quiet and you shut the fuck up i'm happy
1: well if it doesn't work in comedy i definitely think you should go back to teaching you're a natural oh yeah
0: no i was brilliant i was brilliant at it i was really good and if you could give
1: (laughs) if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening what would it be esther
0: never look down never look down because we always judge ourselves when we look down Put on the clothes that you want to put on. Go out, head up and never look down. Because whenever you look down, you start to second question yourself. You think you're fatter than you are. You think your outfit's worse than it is. You wish you'd had a shave. You wish you'd had a shave. So just put on your clothes in the morning. Whatever feels comf- comfy, whatever you're happiest in and just look forward. Don't look down. or back. <laughs>
1: Namaste, motherfucker! That was Esther Manito. Every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, well, this week, I'm afraid all I'm going to do is tell you about my puppy. Because we talked about the mummy dog uh, being in labour, and she was. And little Jeff, my little puppy, was born. He is now four weeks old, so... He's very cute. If you follow me on social media, you can have a look. And I'm getting him. He's moving in in four weeks. So not really a thing I'm going to do this week inspired by my desk, by my guest. But I see, I'm so excited about Jeff, I can't even speak. But just a thing I wanted to tell you, lovely listener. So that is it for this week. Please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast and we'll be back in your feed next Monday as always when I'll be talking to founder of the Lions Barber Collective, Tom Chapman. I've
0: known people for 20 years, I've seen them through first days with now wives, miscarriages, newborns, funerals, job redundancies, new interviews, you know, all the whole thing.
1: Namaste, Motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. people.